Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lubiton. I've been the frontman of the California Roots Orchestra Dust Bowl Revival for 10 years, and I've been touring in bands since I was 14, and I've always wanted to ask my favorite writers and music makers what really makes them tick. What makes them write the songs they write? This is my chance to find out. This week on the podcast, a very special conversation I had with Texas Swamp Blues legend Tony Joe White. Now, we were going to wait to release this for another month or so, but we just found out some sad news. This week, Tony passed away suddenly. If you aren't familiar with him, Tony Joe has been making trance-like country blues with his signature ominous growl and slithering electric guitar for over 50 years. Many only know him for his novelty hit, Poke Salad Annie, one of my all-time favorite songs, which was covered by a guy named Elvis, and he also wrote for Dusty Springfield and Tina Turner, and I especially love the story he told me about Bob Dylan sneaking in to see him play at the bitter end in New York and sending him song requests on cocktail napkins. I was lucky enough to talk to him in a hotel diner in Hollywood when he was passing through LA recently. I apologize if it's a bit noisy, but I urge you to listen all the way through. The guy has some crazy stories. Okay. Let's hear it from the man himself, Tony Joe White. Thanks for talking to me, Tony. How are you? I'm good, man. You? Hey, I got some iced tea on a hot day. Why not? Did you come to L.A. back in like the late 60s, early 70s when you first started yeah. writing music? I played out here a lot. With what was the what were the venues that you used to play back then? Um, was the Palomino around then? It was, but I didn't play that as more like country people playing there. I, I was doing the whiskey. Was the Ashgrove around? Troubadour. Troubadour is still around. Whiskey Go Go. And one other we played mostly. Like when you got a new album out, that's where you, where you went and it's played still, it for the people. Still, still what you do at, at the Troubadour. It's kind of the. It's somehow mis- retained its mystique. So you, uh, you're in town. For just a couple days? Yesterday, today. Did you come yeah. in from uh, south? I came in from a little town called Leapers Fork. It's about 40 miles out of Nashville, down by the river. And uh, we left there, man, and storms. Mm. So this felt good. And you're from Louisiana originally, right? Yeah. You moved to Nashville pretty early on, right, in the 60s? No, I actually moved, uh, when I got out of high school, I went straight to Marietta, Georgia, mm. and my sister lived there. And I lived with her and her husband and drove a dump truck for the highway department oh, wow. for about three months or four. And then it, when it would rain, I wouldn't work, so stay home, play my guitar. When it was a rainy night over Georgia? Yeah. <laughs> so. That all came by after I left there, moved on down to Texas, and songs started coming. Uh, Polk was one of them. Rainy Night was 
another one. So they were true stories, though, true happenings. Yeah, it's interesting because you're one of those people that even someone like me who's been playing roots music in some form for almost 15 years and I try to feel like I know a lot of the greats and a lot of the, the people that influenced me and influenced people before me. The way I found out about you was kind of funny. Um, we played in the Netherlands over in Holland and we have this very quirky driver, you know, sort of fixer, translator who... Uh, he never says he likes anything. He's like, he has to, everything has to be the same. He's like, the Dutch are very fair, right? Even if you play the best show of your life, he's like, well, it was, it was an average, pretty good, okay show, you know? And we finally asked him, we're like, look, you've been in music for 20 years. If you could see one person right now, who would it be? And he, he was driving late at night and he thought about it for like 10 minutes and he said, Tony Joe White. <laughs> and we all had to look you up on our phones. We're like, who? You know, this was probably about five years ago. And I was like, Tony Joe White? That's the person in the whole world, living or dead, that he would want to see. And of course, you know, Pope Salad Annie and all that stuff came up. And, and it's one of those things where I've been playing you kind of nonstop ever since. You know, sometimes it takes a, a Dutch guy in the middle of the forest driving a van to tell you what your favorite music is, you know. Yeah, I was just over there um, about three, three or four months ago. Amsterdam and all up through there. And there's a place there called uh, it's a real famous rock club. Stone. Paradiso. Yeah. yeah. We played the big room. Yeah, man. And just men, men drums as always, and it was packed to the top. And the Dutch people love this music. Man. People were really moving to it, you know. So I've been going over there since the uh, late '60s. Uh, but you were embraced in France and in different places way before you were probably bigger here, right? Yeah. Why do you think that is? I don't know because the album, Black and White, it had on it Pokes Out of Lanny, Raining Out in Georgia, uh, Soul Francisco, yeah. which was about the hippie movement. Yeah. And so I was playing in Corpus Christi, Texas and got a phone call from a disc jockey in Paris. And in French he called you up? Yeah. <laughs> and he called me up and he could speak pretty good English. I could understand him pretty good. At that time, there wasn't hardly any English going on over there. And he said, uh, the reason I'm calling you is you got the number two record in Paris, France right now. And I said, what's the name of it? <laughs> and I didn't even know. So, it, went from that to, to the press and people talking in magazines and then they called and wanted me to come and play in a tour and I didn't have even my drums with me then I just said I was by myself and I had a wooden coca-cola box for my foot mm. for my drum yeah and there's places like the whole 1500 2000 people and they came to dance and move and boogie and it was just like back down home in Texas. They did. You know, it was like, didn't, they didn't need drums or nothing. They just, let's rock. Did you, do you prefer playing with a stripped down set? Because a lot of those early records, there's horns and all sorts of studio all over it, but is it? Yeah, some of the earlier ones, we, Billy, Billy Swan, friend, he loved to use horns and 
Muscle Shoals, of course, I love them boys. But I really like to play with just drums on stage. No um, bass. No bass. Seems like I've got enough bass going in my thumb. Are you playing an open tuning? No, just regular tuning. But it's an old 65 Strat. It's got a good mellow tone. And my drummer's got a great foot. And I've had people to come up and ask us, did we have the bass and the organ taped in the background? <laughs> <laughs> and you know who one of them was? In Belgium. He did a show. He, he opened the show. Solomon Burke. Wow. He said, man, I know you got, I heard organ and drums in that set. I said, this man here, the drummer, is the only other man on the stage. It's echoing in your brain somewhere. Yeah, yours is somewhere. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Soul Francisco because, you know, it talks about that uh, the kid's got a little more soul, you know, and I'm, I'm curious what you think about, you know, young people making music today. I think a lot of them, a lot of them are cool. There's some down in a couple of bands down in Mississippi and in Austin that I've heard. Which which bands you like? Right um, Kudzu was one. In Austin, there was just a couple of bands I heard when I was playing down there at the festival. And I really never did get their name, but they were playing good blues stuff, kind of rock and blues with five-piece band, that kind of thing. But they seemed to know what they were doing. There's definitely conversations I've had with other young artists who are from California, from all over the place, about sort of how roots music, blues, funk, and soul, and all this stuff seems to be definitely rooted in the South, but a lot of the best players that we know are all San Francisco or from Boston or from all over the place. I'm curious what you think, you know, growing up in Louisiana and Georgia and, and you know, all that stuff, did it seep into your music, your environment? Well, of course, the Louisiana did. With the, I lived on a, a cotton farm with my dad and mom and older brother and five sisters. It's a lot of sisters. Seven kids. And we had 40 acres on the, on the river by the swamps. And all of them played, played guitar and piano and sang. Musical family. Except I, would, I had never tried to play nothing with them or anything. I just sat on the porch and listened to them in the evening. You, you were know. the youngest? Yeah. This was in Goodwill, Goodwill Louisiana. Louisiana. Where is that? It's up in the northeast end, not too far from Greenville, Mississippi, and up on that corner there. And the food's different, the music's I mean, most of them are really like blues and hanging like that. The line that you wrote, you know, on the, when you live off the land, you don't have time to think about another man's color. And, uh, you know, they lived in a shack just like our shack type thing, you know. Do you think uh, things have gotten better from those times, you know, in terms of how the races are intermingling with each other and working things out? It moved along. Those were sweet, syrupy little lazy days, you know, back in there. And Willie and Laura Mae Jones, which is the song you're talking about, it's got them words. They actually lived about five miles down the dirt road from us. And they would come down and pick cotton with us, sit on the porch and play. And 
I was just, it was just like home to me. And then my brother, I was about 14, he brought home an album by Lyman Hopkins. Mm. And up to then, I just heard gospel and country music. And he put that on the old record player. And I heard the, my first blues. And then How old I, were you? I was 14. Mm. So I started sneaking my dad's guitar up to my room at night and playing that record. And as it turned out, later I got to meet all my heroes eventually. Uh, I actually played on an album after Pocatello was out, and Warner Brothers called me and said, "Come to L.A. Lightning Hopkins is recording a new album." In L.A. Yeah, it's called the L.A. Mudslide. <laughs> and I came and brought a guitar and my harmonica. He come walking in with his wife. How old was he? You think? Me? No, how old was Lightning Hopkins? He looked like he was around. Mid fifties, late fifties by then. I think I was around twenty three, twenty four. Were you starstruck? Almost, but my fingers moved and <laughs> good. And he said he stopped his wife had a a paper sack with a big jug of wine in it. He took that wine out, went into the studio and he come and where I was sitting with my guitar and and he said, You gonna play with me, boy? And I said, that's right. He said, hit me something. And I did a little, baby, please don't go, one of his tunes or something on the guitar. And he said, turn it on. The engineer, they turned the tape on and he played 14, 13 songs in a row wow. between sips of wine. And I just went along with him best I could because Lightning plays in town and out of time and Lightning time, you know. Was he, was he playing in open tunings? He was, yeah, he was playing in open tunings. G tuning or something, yeah. And uh, we got through with them. It didn't take 45 minutes. Each song's about two minutes long? Yeah. And he was making some of them up as he went. Yeah. So he got up and he shook my hand he said, real nice playing with you, man. He quit, he quit calling me boy. Yeah. And he went in the studio, and there's a guy in a suit in there, and he took that paper sack and held it out. And the guy dropped 10 $100 bills in that sack. Lighting said, it's been nice, y'all, thank you. Where was he from? Houston, Texas. And they got on a bus, him and his wife, took that sack of money and left. No contracts. Nothing. Took the bus? Trailways. <laughs> a Greyhound. Well, it's like those old timers, like, I mean, even Aretha Franklin, she just passed, you know, she, she only got paid in cash in her handbag and it would be on the piano. That's <laughs> the only, isn't, didn't, uh, isn't um, Chuck Berry also the, he like takes like a briefcase of cash? Like, hey, Chuck was real bad about, Wilson Pickett was bad about it, wanting the money <laughs> right then. As soon as I get through playing, or before I play you. Sometimes when people, you know, festivals or whatever, pay you before you play, it almost feels like bad luck. Yeah, it's like, it's I, like know, I haven't even got up there yet. I know. I never have liked, liked to do that. The only time that was ever offered to me, I turned it down. <laughs> I was playing with uh, Sly and the Family Stone. 
and we were playing in Boston at the college, and Sly was late as usual, and it was me and a, a drummer. The promoter came back after Sly was about nearly an hour late, and he said, he said, Tony's I'm gonna go ahead and pay you now. He said, why don't y'all just go ahead and head to your room, I don't think Sly's gonna show up, and that crowd is not in a good mood right now. Yeah. He said, especially to see him. White faces come walking out and play. <laughs> I said, well, look, man, we come all this way, two flights to get up here. I'd love, like to play one or two songs at least. And my drummer, Sammy Creason, he was from Arkansas. He said, get the money and let's get out of here, man, get it. Yeah. And I'd had a couple of Budweiser beers and I was feeling loose. And I said, no, I want to play one song. And we walked out on stage, and I had that guitar all ready to go. And somebody in the audience started hollering, a couple of women or something. Said, you better be good at taking all this time. And I was like, well, no it ain't me taking the time. And anyway, I hit into uh, boom, boom, boom. That guitar thing in the front. And man, they let it go. And I ended up playing 45 minutes for the crowd. And Sly finally came. You have a recording of Boom Boom that you put out uh, recently. Yeah. Did you ever get to play with John Lee Hooker? Played with him uh, in Nashville at a uh, concert he did. And he liked Pokes out of that, so he had invited me in. And, uh, like life, and he liked Poke. So they'd all eaten it, knew what it was about, knew it was real. Did when? How did you find out that Elvis was going to cover that song, Poke Salad, Danny? Well, Poke had made it to like number two in in America in the chart, and and then Rainy Night pops up and right in behind it with Brooke Benton. So I had fireworks coming every which way, and Felton Jarvis, who was Elvis's producer, he called me and said. He said, Tony Joe, we're going to send a plane down to Memphis, pick you and your wife up, bring you to Las Vegas, and let you watch us do Poke Saladini each night. We're going to record it six nights. Wow. I said, who's with you, Felton? He said, well, you know I'm doing Elvis. And I said, and that's who's going to do it? He said, yeah. So here was another person I'd looked up to, and all of a sudden he's cutting my song, you know. We flew out there and stayed. Did you talk to him at all? Six weeks, yeah. Talked to him every night. Back in the dressing room. He had an acoustic guitar back there. And he had sent word to, to Felton to tell me to come back after the show each night. And he wanted to learn some blues licks. And I just showed him two or three licks, you know, something he could mess around with. And the next night he'd come in, I'd say, hey, how's the guitar licks coming? He said, man, I forgot them all. Could you run them by me one more time? <laughs> anyway, it was like that six nights in a row. He never did get it. I don't know how Elvis played his guitar too straight if he's moving around so much like that. Yeah. Well, I told him, I said, man, you don't really need to learn to play guitar. I said, just hold it in your hands if you want a guitar. Don't worry about playing. You don't have to play the way you sing and move. So... He always was cool to me and treated me good and 
Then down in Memphis later on at Stax, we recorded a couple more of my songs. Really, down home. Do you have a certain amount of dates that you play every year on the road? No. Just as it comes? I really, I pay a lot of attention to writing when I want, when a song comes up. Um, you just write, write at home in, in Nashville? There, I write down by the river mostly and uh, in my, I got a little studio in the barn out there too. But I just always didn't like to stay out too long because for some reason when I'm on the road playing gigs, I rarely write a word. Mm. But then when I get home and sit down and think about a certain night or certain person, the way they looked or something, something comes in. But So I don't really stay out and just hammer it down. I'm curious what your what your favorite food is on the road, depending where you go. It kind of depends on where I'm at. Like, when I leave, when I leave where I live, I leave, if I'm not close to New Orleans or Austin or Baton Rouge, somewhere like that, I just kind of, when I go to Europe or Australia, I get in, I pretty well stay with just meat and potatoes and fish sometimes. But when I'm in places like close to New Orleans, get after those crawfish and... What you grew up with? That's it. There's a, on your Hoodoo album, you have like extra tracks where you're talking about the songs, which is kind of interesting. And um, you talked about uh, writing a few songs with your wife and that they had a bit of a mystical bent to them. Yep. She's a good writer, and she's like me. She don't just probably write four or five times a year, you know, but all of a sudden she'll come walking in where I'm playing a guitar in a room or something and go, how does this line sound right here? And she had undercover agent almost finished word-wise mm. by Tina Turner. Mm. I to us. It sounds really good, and I'll put a few few more lines in and the guitar, the chord. Next thing we know, Tina's got it and recorded it. How did she connect with you? Her manager was Roger Davies, Australian man, really good guy. And they were here in LA and she was doing a Chrysler commercial. And he said later that he had got a hold of the little reel-to-reel tape. I had four songs on it. And like de- I, demos you did on on reel to reel. Yeah, I just yeah. It was just me and a guitar and yeah. my foot, and I had put them four songs down. One was Undercover Agent, Steamy Windows, who, who know you know who's doing you know what, and then Foreign Affair, which was in my mind that was going to be the song I would show him when I went out. So I brought those four songs, and uh, Roger. I went over to the studio where they were recording the commercial. He said, Tina wants to do Undercover Agent. He said, she wants you to play guitar. Harmonica, she wants to cut it back ports like you cut it. Just organ, bass, drums, you and her. I said, cool. (laughs) 
And here we went, and she wanted to go to Chicago and record it. Why Chicago? Is it chess record? Was she on chess records now? I don't know who it was with. Oh, I don't. I can't think she was with Capitol at that time. So anyway, we recorded that in one take, and she come out of the booth, singing booth, and she said, "Hey, I heard something else on that little tape you got." She said, "I really like it. I'd like to cut it." Steamy Winters. So here we go into Steamy Winters, and again. One take, because she, she scattered all her down. She don't mess around. She had memorized it already? She had it. Wow. Had had it in her hotel room that night, mm. in a little tape player. So we ended up cutting one more Chicago, and then she said, there's one more on there, and I'm just living in like a dream. Man. Yeah. It's like Elvis again in our line of Hopkins. Here's Tina Turner done three songs and wants to fly to Paris to do the fourth one. Why Paris? She said it just has the mood. Foreign <laughs> affairs. <laughs> <laughs> so we go to London. I cut Did she have her own plane? Yeah. <laughs> I cut the tracks there. Uh, Mark Knopfler come in. He hung out. Actually played a couple of guitar licks on the song. We all flew to Paris, and Tina went in and nailed it. So she ended up doing all four. So back to what started, it was Leanne's uh, undercover agent for the blues. Where did where did that come from, you think? She wrote it about Bellucci and Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> oh, yeah. the blues brothers. Uh-huh. They came to Memphis when we was living there. And Duck Don was a good friend of mine. Donald Duck Don. Donald Duck. And he fished with me. We fished together a lot. And he had invited the whole bunch out to my house for a fish fry. Everybody but Belucci didn't come. Zach Rod, Paul, all of them. So that's how all that kicked off. It was about the Blues Brothers. That's funny. And I want to do a couple... Uh, creative questions about your songwriting. Um, what comes first, words or chords? They switch around. Sometimes a guitar chords or licks will come. Sometimes a title will come first. So I don't never really question it or have a set program on how to do it. It's like I believe it's all sent, sent to me anyway from another spot. And Does it feel like I, you're channeling from some I, other plane or some sort of mystical source of creativity? No, I figure it's all sent down by God and by whoever who influenced me through the years, like most of the people I've been talking about for the last few minutes. I just know that all of a sudden it pops up, and it, if it's a lick or a title, I build a little campfire and get a six-pack of cold beer sit down with a guitar by the river there and just kind of listen to the mind a little bit. Do you write it down in a, in a notebook or, a, or you just memorize it? Not at that time. I keep, I just try to let everything be quiet. And then when it gets on down in there that I know it's going to be a song, I write it down. I want to ask you quickly about the, uh, they caught the devil and put him in jail in Eudora, Arkansas. Um, <laughs> 
If the devil walked into this restaurant right now, what do you think he would look like? What I think he would look like? Or say, who knows? I would I would say he would almost look pretty normal, keep keep everything pretty cool, you know. Cause I've got a I've got a song now. Well, I've got about fifteen new songs over the winter that I haven't put out yet. And one of them is it's entitled uh, "Raining in the Graveyard," mm. and it's it was so natural. The guy was raining in the graveyard. That's where my woman lay. And beside her was her lover in an unmarked grave. So it was just natural that all of a sudden, and the devil walked around, keeping his eyes on both the graves. Mm. And he would soon take the lovers and be on his way. And I pictured him right then, and he was kind of a man with a slouch hat and a long overcoat, no tail or nothing like that. But he keeps, he pops up in certain situations, the word, because in them, them days and time, the devil in the door of Arkansas. My mother and dad, you know, 50 years old, they went in a team of mules and, and wagons, and everybody from around that country went to Eudora to see the devil. Some hunters had got him in a net. To go and, see him, the devil? And they had him in a, a jail in the cell. Because it's the Eudora, Arkansas, the, the jailhouse in Eudora, Arkansas caught the devil and put him in jail. And they were packing ice around the cell, box of ice to keep him from Rick taking his tail and cutting the bars. There were sparks coming from his tail? Sparks coming. So grown people went to see that. And of course by then, he'd done cut his way out. He was gone. But to, for a little kid, eight years old and stuff to hear that it was hard to go to sleep that night. Do you think Do you think your parents believed it? Well they did not believe it because <laughs> they went to look and a lot of other farmers around there because there was no TV no nothing like that so stories was important a man come running up on a horse going they caught the devil and got him got him a big net and got him in a jail Do you think they charged admission to see it? <laughs> no, I don't think I missed that. Do you believe in ghosts? Yeah, I do. There's probably some ghosts in this hotel. This hotel is pretty old. I would say in this old hotel that have to be, man. It's been here so long. But it's not that I've seen them, but I do believe in them. I'm curious also about uh, the idea of uh, hoodoo. What does that word mean to you? Well, hoodoo is like, it's it's a form of, it's kind of a magical thing. Like uh, a girl hoodooed you, or boy, she put the hoodoo on me, I mean, just looking at her, you knocked you off your feet. And It's an energy. Of and voodoo fire. is the other one, mm. which is taking somebody's hair and putting it, burying it in swamps and water out of a comb and saying some words on it, that's, that's no good. Hoodoo is 
kind of got a little goodness to it. All right, so it's like the positive voodoo. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to do a creative exercise where the first thing that comes to your brain when I say a word, don't even think about it. I say vampire. Blood. The cross. Jesus. Mountaintop. I would think of uh, Taos, New Mexico from that. I lived there for a while. You lived in Taos? What was that like? We had a house out there. It's just another way of life, you know. We lived right on the Indian Reservation. Our house was backed up to the Pueblos. And I'm I'm half Cherokee, mm. so we had a lot. Of, I had a lot of friends out there that I could go out and hang with them. Talk. From your mom's side or your dad's side? Mom's, and uh, so I would say, mountaintop, toes. Broken. String, guitar. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> True love. Once in a lifetime. Do you think monogamy and like having one person that you love your whole life is ridiculous or do you think it's actually the right way to do it? I can't say about the monogamy, but I can say that it's, it's good for, to find someone that you can go a lifetime with and share and hang and have a lot in common together, which my wife and I, we've been married 50-something years. She's a Texas woman. How'd you guys meet? She came to a club in uh, Kingsville, Texas. She was going to college at A&I. And uh, she loved music, and she'd heard that there was someone playing at this club. He was hes a white boy, but he sounded like Elvis and John Lee Hooker. And she loved blues and that kind of thing. She came down and hit it off. She's been listening ever since. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it takes a certain type of uh, good sport, I think, to be the wife of a lifetime musician. I couldn't, I couldn't think about it. If I was a girl, all that you're exposed to and all you have to really watch out for on the road, it's you're a pretty rare case in, in many forms, but, you know, the fact that you've been with your wife and you're playing this long and, and you know, you guys are doing great, I mean, that's, that's hard to do. It's having, having the music in common and writing together sometimes. I think that would be a big, string, stout rope like in our lives all the way down. What, if you weren't playing music, what do you think you'd be doing? I probably wouldn't, wouldn't be breathing on the earth. <laughs> but if I, you know, would just, I'd be fishing. I'd be one of the best fishermen on earth. There's a certain, I think, trance-like um, sound and, and feeling to some of your music, which also reminds me of, you know, stuff like Lightning Hopkins and uh, John Lee Hooker, where it has this sort of uh, timeless flow to it, like a river, where you don't know when you're going to the four chord necessarily, you know. 
or you don't know if you're ever going to go to the five chord yeah uh, do you feel like sometimes when you're playing with other people it takes a little bit to have them get into that flow but it's, it's pretty unique well that's why I like live concerts uh, just my drummer and he don't have to know the key yeah <laughs> so I just can hit it in total freedom jump into any song I want go all the way back to the first album all the way up to now and uh, it's just I, I like I like bass and organ but I like them in certain spots but not to have it every night but this new album that's we just did. It's all it's blues, and I wanted to do a whole blues album for a long time because I was raised on. What do you What do you consider blues versus the stuff you're doing normally? Like well, 12, twelve bar style, well, or what I what I do normally is what I call swamp rock. You know, swamp rock. Yeah, it's it's blues you can dance to. Okay, it's got a groove and a beat. But we moved, we had the studio in Franklin, Tennessee, a real big old, old house. And all these years we've been cutting it there with Jody, my son, and he's bass and me, guitar and drums. And uh, for this album, I, I told Jody, I said, if, you just, if we're going to do a blues album, you got to make it really sound like it. So we moved the whole studio out to my house and the barn, and we got a couple of carpenters come in there and do some work on the inside of two two stalls. And I said, now we'll we'll cut some blues out here. It's got a tin roof. So a lot of the songs is just me and a guitar, harmonica in my foot, and then I brought in a. Fleetwood, who's the drummer, he come in and play brushes on uh, Boom Boom Boom. And we put a little bass with that. So all the interviews that I'm <clears throat> doing across the world, Europe and Australia, everybody keeps asking, how did it, did you get it to sound so authentic and like, almost like 1930? Mm. And I said, we cut it in a barn. Yeah. <laughs> and got back where the coyotes were howling and the rain would hit the roof and we didn't care. We let it go. Jody produces a lot of your records? Yeah. He's talking about the last seven or eight wow. albums. And I always, since he got out of college, he's been into publishing, book, booking, and stuff like that. It must be nice working with your son. It really is, man. And he's got a great feel, got a great ear, you know, for what's happening with everything. But he really got in to this album because he he had never, believe it or not, really sat down and listened to Hooker or Lightning or none of them. And he got into them. And he can't he can't quit now. It's he, a family business. He found. A song by Charlie Patton, you know, the originator of blues, they'd say, yeah. Latin said he was. Right. Called uh, Ain't Going Down a Dirt Road by Myself. Jody found that and played it for me. And I, I said, oh man, yeah, we got to do that. Turn the tape on. 
Are you, are you actually recording on tape? Reel to reel. So the 16 track. You think it still sounds better? Still sounds better, especially in this case with acoustic guitar and harmonica and your there's foot. That, there's that little like natural echo in tape for some reason that just feels better for me. It's there. It's like the only time I really, really like the sound of my voice. We did our album on two-inch tape like five years ago. Yeah. And it has, it doesn't have like a big sound, but it has like this spooky vibe that's a hard to, dis, you know, hard to capture, you know. It's really cool and, and funny about all, all the rappers in the last few years have bought up just about all the 16-track oh, really? tapes. Because they like to do the, the voice and the words fur on it. Put some kind of groove with it on drum. But they said ain't no other machine can capture that thing. Said it's a little mystery in it. Do you listen to hip hop at all? Yeah. Do I you? like hip hop. Yeah. Like who? I can't really name any people that I've checked out, but I've got one uh, or two on this new one. Not this new album, but the one that's still in the barn. Got a hip-hop groove. If you could put a, a music festival together on the in outside your barn, anyone living or dead, who would it be? Who would play with you? Well, that'd be hard to do, man, because I, I would go back. To, yeah, living or dead. I would go back to uh, Lightning, Elvis, John Lee. Most of them are went to the other side by now, but there's still, you know, people I like. I still, I still dig Bob Dylan a lot. Although I liked some of the earlier stuff best, but he was, he was original to me. That's a hard question, it'd take a long time to dig them all up. I'm always, I'm always, it makes me laugh when I see Bob Dylan on another huge tour. It's like, why is he touring so much still? I think it's just like, that's his life, right? Do you think the road and like traveling and, and, and having to perform to people, does it become like almost an addiction, an obsession? There's probably something to that. It's like him and Willie Nelson, all, that is their life. They drive, Willie said the only time he sleeps is when he's on that bus. Mm. And I can't even ride a bus, man. bus makes me seasick. So everybody's got different things. I don't know how how Bob stays out there all this time, man. I played with him in Australia. He doesn't need, he doesn't need to do it. No, the year before last, I played a big festival in Australia, the Byron Bay Blues Festival. Mm. He was there? Does he know about your music? Yeah. He came... Uh, when I was doing about the fourth, fifth album uh, at the Bitter End in New York, playing it, you know, the press and everybody, he came to the show that night. And about two-thirds of the way through the show, a waitress brought a little piece of paper up, laid it by my foot, and it said, please do the High Sheriff of Calhoun Parish. And it just said BD on it. Mm. 
Bob Dylan sending you song requests from the audience? <laughs> requests, man. And also it says, meet me next door when you break. Next door was another little bar. This is what, mid-70s? Yeah, pretty well. Pretty close to 80. Mm. So when we knocked off, did our show, I walked over to that little bar and it was a place with peanuts, shells on the floor and cold beer and all that. And I kept looking around for him because I kept expecting to see this kind of an older dude, you know, and at least not a little kid, you know. And I finally spotted a guy in the very back in a corner and he had on a little a little snow cap or something like that and his face was real clean shaven. He looked like he's 16 years old. Oh, even in 1980, yeah. And I walked closer to him, I said, Bob? He said, Tony Joe, sit down. And we sat, had a couple of beers and just talked for a good while. Most about songs. But he, the high sheriff is the one he liked. This is, this is why, you know, us Jewish songwriters, we can't shave the beard. Because then we just look like we're 13 years old, like having our bar mitzvahs. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I know my mom, she always, when I'd come home, if I'd get a hair, if I had gotten a haircut, she said, oh, that looks good. Makes you look so young. But if you get it long, she says, boy, you need a haircut. That's really getting on out. <laughs> That's good. You know, uh, me and Credence toured for a good while really? after I had the records out. We toured Europe and over in America. When was this? It was in the uh, early 70s, mid-70s. Doug Don was playing bass with me at that time. And every night, Credence or us, we opened the show. We would try to burn each other down, you know, because me and Duck, we fished together, and he knows the swamps. And Fogarty kept talking about over the microphone and how they love to play that swamp music and everything. And I said, Duck, are any swamps or alligators in Berkeley? And he said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so it was a war of who could get the loudest and play the hardest, you know. It was fun, though. So the uh, last thing I want to ask you um, is about the progression, you think, of how you were writing songs and singing, you know, when you started versus today, or do you feel like it's been this flow that's stayed the same? It's pretty well stayed the same. Of course, times change and your ideals and stuff, but the guitar licks, they'll move around different ways, different talent, but I still, I still build a fire outside over a campfire, get acoustic guitar and sit down when I get something going. So it's still going. It's hard to build a campfire on the road and write songs. Can't. <laughs> Unless you go camping, maybe. Unless you get out of your hotel. You don't want to light a fire in California right now. You might you uh, burn some forests. Don't even think about it. Don't even think the word. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you uh, you talking to me. This has been really fun. 
Well, Iron's order, man, is a good question. <laughs> a lot of different. Hey, so due to time and sound constraints, Tony couldn't play a song for us on his signature Stratocaster, but here is the title track from his newest album, Bad Mouthin'. It actually just came out a few weeks ago. He was working hard to the end. I think this really captures Tony at his raw best. Here it is, Bad Mouthin'.
there you have it, the one and only Tony Joe White. There goes a bad, bad man. I keep thinking, you gotta go see your heroes before they go, because you never know. I was lucky enough to see Tom Petty for the first time two days before he died last year. Man, am I glad I did. These guys are one of a kind. I'd love to give a big thanks to Carrie Baker and Tony's son, Jody White, for helping me set up this interview in the first place. It was a blast. I'll never forget it. If you want to learn more about Tony Joe White, go to thebluegrasssituation.com. In August, we put out a song premiere of his cover of Big Boss Man, written by Jimmy Reed. It's off his newest album, Bad Mouthin', and it sounds awesome. The show on the road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs, with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love the show on the road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The show on the road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the trail. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.